The Politics Girl podcast has a new partnership, Athletic Greens. And I can't tell you how excited I am to get going with it. I've heard nothing but rave reviews, and I know the founder is one of those peak health, clean eating, body as a temple types, but he also created this supplement for people like me who find it hard to get that optimal nutrition on their own. Okay, so what is Athletic Greens? Athletic Greens is a powder supplement that goes into water. You start the day with one scoop on an empty stomach, and then the special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, anti-aging, sleep, all the things. It's basically an all-in-one nutritional insurance for your body. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes and trusted by leading health experts. It's a once-a-day micro habit that uses the best products and is based on the latest science. In fact, their current formula is on its 53rd iteration because they're constantly updating it as the science advances. No matter how you eat, keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it'll fit into your lifestyle. It has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals, and no artificial anything. So I'm excited. I'll let you know how it goes. If you want to join me on my journey to better gut health and more energy and an optimized immune system, you can go to athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. And Athletic Greens will give you a free one year of immune supporting vitamin D, great for going into the winter, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and get the ultimate in daily nutrition. Let's do this. Woo! Did you see Trump's blog on Saturday saying all the Democrats want to do is put people in jail? Dude, your hit single was lock her up. <laughs> you nervous, bro? You sound nervous. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. <laughs> Hello. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. So the news item that should be the leading story on every network, that should be splashed in 96 point across the front of every newspaper in America in that war is over font, is Republican Party attempts coup. Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, in collusion with his team and current sitting members of Congress, deliberately attempted to overthrow the government of the United States and end American democracy as we know it. The plot was premeditated, is ongoing, and includes active military personnel, White House staff, and prior executive branch members. This is the story of the century. And while the details are still unfolding, and whether any guilty parties will actually see criminal accountability is up in the air, it is happening. No matter what the press reports about Biden's poll numbers or what Fox News makes up as its top story, this is not conjecture, rumor, or even wishful thinking. These are provable facts discerned from the recent PowerPoint presentation of Trump's own chief of staff, Mark Meadows, released in full to the January 6th bipartisan select committee, corroborated by text messages and documents implicating, and in some cases incriminating, incredibly high-profile Republicans and right-wing media stars. It's been almost a year since January 6th, and although we still don't have all the answers, we can now be sure that what happened wasn't some rally that got out of hand, a regular tourist visit, or a false flag operation on behalf of a nefarious group looking to smear the MAGA movement. But it was part of a deliberately crafted plan to undermine American democracy and keep Donald Trump in power against the will of the voters. The Republicans and the right-wing media have spent the past year telling us to move on, to not look into it, to let it go. We watched them maliciously point fingers at Antifa, BLM, the FBI, and even the Democrats, all well knowing full well what happened and who was really to blame. 
For anyone paying close attention, none of what's coming out now is a surprise. Donald Trump told us from the beginning he wasn't going to accept the results of the elections, that the only way he could lose was if it was rigged, that he would see how the election shook out before he decided if it was real or not. He undermined the virus. He sabotaged the post office. He sowed doubt in drop boxes. Hell, he implemented the Stop the Steal movement four years after his chief strategist, Steve Bannon, bought the domain name because saying the election was stolen was always part of the plan. The only difference was the year they rolled it out. What's deeply shocking about this isn't that the 45th president of the United States was organizing a coup and planned to retain power by any means necessary. It's how many Republicans chose to go along with it, and that number appears to be staggeringly high. These are active members of our government, congressmen and women, senators, executive branch members, leading voices in the American media, business owners and billionaires. Brass tacks, there has been a sustained and coordinated attack on the legitimacy of the American government and a concerted malicious plot to subvert American democracy going on for over a year and the amount of people seemingly involved is insane. Have they been successful? Not yet. Could they still be? Absolutely. So it's important we understand where we are so we can go forward from a place of knowledge and put the right pressure on the right people to do the right thing. This is a big deal. What's going on is unprecedented in American history. They used to hang people for this kind of stuff. Our democracy is under direct threat, and as Barton Gelman, the brilliant writer for The Atlantic, wrote in his article, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun, the prospect of a democratic collapse in America is not far-fetched. People with the motive to make it happen are working as we speak to make it so. They are manufacturing the means, and given the opportunity, they will act. Gelman points out that for six years, Trump and his party have worked to convince an alarmingly large number of Americans that the essential workings of our democracy are corrupt, that their made-up claims of fraud are true, and that their opponents cheat to win, tyranny has taken over, and that violence is a legitimate response. Richard L. Hassan, a law and political science professor at UC Irvine, said, we are already in an emergency situation. Now, this is the same professor known for his judicious temperament and caution, who just over a year ago was telling people not to get ahead of themselves. Now he's out here saying our democracy is in imminent danger. He says, we face a serious risk that American democracy as we know it will come to an end in 2024. So how did we get here? What led us to this moment and what do we do next? First of all, Trump never planned to lose the 2020 election. He undermined it every step of the way. He planted the seeds of rigging before he even ran. He convinced his followers his opponent was a bad man with a bad child with bad intentions. And when that didn't work, he told them Biden was senile, weak, hiding in his basement, afraid of a virus that he himself had conquered and no one should be afraid of. He put his supporters in danger at rallies and polling stations to rack up enough support on election day to declare victory and then cry fraud should anything change. He did everything he could to make sure he was the winner, and when he wasn't, he went further, and the Republicans went along with him. After the 2020 election, we had Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, saying the president shouldn't have to leave office. We had the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, saying there would be a peaceful transfer of power if it was to a Trump administration. We had the Attorney General, Bill Barr, acting like the president's personal defense attorney, and the majority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, taking six weeks to formally recognize Joe Biden as a legitimate president. At the time, I remember feeling like I was taking crazy pills. The claim to overturn the election was the accusation of widespread voter fraud, which we were supposed to believe only affected the presidential part of the ballot in the states that Trump needed to win. 
Dominion voting machines were to blame, except when they weren't. The Democrats did it, except when they didn't. And then the Republicans were responsible, despite that making no logical sense. We had key swing state representatives flying into D.C. to be wined and dined at the Trump Hotel and have private meetings with the president at the White House. Trump's head of election security said it was the cleanest election in history and was promptly fired. Trump's AG said there was no proof of fraud or misdoings and then abruptly retired. We had Republican state representatives trying to take their ballot certification back or refusing to certify the election at all. Lindsey Graham, the sitting senator from South Carolina, called the secretary of state in Georgia to try to strong arm him into throwing votes out. And then the president himself called to suggest maybe he could just find 11,780 votes for him instead. At the same time, during the height of the pandemic, in the winter, before we had a vaccine, Trump was on a full out media blitz fundraising, holding huge Stop the Steal rallies, and his surrogates were on TV every day telling the American people the election was a fraud. But while Republican operatives were on TV spitting this narrative and Trump was on stage repeating it, not a single lawsuit filed actually claimed fraud. In fact, Trump's lawyers opened their big New York case with, this is not a fraud case. We aren't alleging fraud or saying that anyone is trying to steal the election. Because the truth is, you can lie to the people, but not to the courts. So while their client fed MAGA supporters a daily stream of democratic tyranny and overreach, Trump's lawyers were in court grasping at straws because they had no actual case and they knew they would be in contempt if they made up things like they do on TV. The entire case was based on smoke and mirrors, which is why, despite what the right-wing media was reporting at the time, that Trump won two-thirds of his cases, of the 60 cases filed by the Trump team after the election, all but one were lost or thrown out for lack of evidence. All the big firm lawyers ended up quitting the team, and Trump was left with Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who we can all see are not only the bottom of the rotten barrel, but will most likely be proved to be criminals themselves. And the case that they won? It was based on a technicality. It centered on reducing the amount of time Pennsylvania voters had to fix errors on their mail-in ballots. The Trump campaign was granted an injunction to stop the extension the Secretary of State had given to give people three days to show their proof of ID. So cool. That case made absolutely zero difference to the results of the election and had nothing to do with fraud. Mark Elias, the lawyer and warrior for democracy who represented the Democrats in the lawsuits, said Trump won one case in post-elections and lost 64. He couldn't prove any alleged fraud or get election results overturned, so he busied himself with other lawsuits to muddy the waters. Things like how close poll workers were allowed to stand to ballots being counted or how many Republicans were allowed to be in the room. Just case after case of legally dubious claims brought to federal court. Hassan, the law professor from UC Irvine, points out that the key place to challenge election results isn't actually in federal court, but state court. And Trump and his allies only brought a few cases there, which they lost badly because they didn't have any evidence. At the end of the day, they were too busy with bogus federal claims so they could just tell their people they were out there fighting. As time went on, every set of ballots recounted came back with the same result. Joe Biden had won the 2020 presidential election. In fact, just this month, the Associated Press finished a review of every potential case of voter fraud in the six battleground states disputed by the former president and found fewer than 475 out of 25.5 million votes. The disputed ballots represent just 0.15% of President Biden's margin of victory, which the AP explained would not change the outcome of the election in any way, 
even if all the disputed votes had been cast for Biden, which they weren't, or if all the ballots in question had been counted, which in most cases they were not. The review also showed that there was no collusion to rig the voting, as almost every case was based on individuals acting alone. The process took months and encompassed more than 300 local election offices and is now considered one of the most comprehensive examinations of suspected voter fraud for the last election. Ben Hovland, a Democrat appointed by Trump to serve on the U.S. Election Assistance Committee, explained that every credible examination of the 2020 election has shown that there was no widespread voter fraud. You hear these claims and you hear these allegations, but when you do a real investigation, you see that they are the exception and not the rule. To that point, the Arizona audit, the one that everyone was counting on to be definitive proof of cheating in the election, came back not with voter fraud for Biden, but with more votes for Biden. Anyone paying attention knows that the claim that the election was stolen was and still is utter bullshit. But that hasn't stopped Republican representatives and right-wing pundits from continuing to repeat the lie to keep their base fired up, tuned in, and spending money. And that cynical choice has been deeply detrimental to the health of our entire country, both literally and metaphorically. In fact, 70% of GOP voters now believe the election was stolen, and Republicans have used this self-perpetuated fear to create over 500 new election integrity laws, which in reality only serve to undermine elections for everyone but themselves moving forward. As Gelman's Atlantic article points out, for more than a year, with the support of their party's national leaders, state Republican operatives have been building an apparatus of election theft. Elected officials in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and other states have studied Donald Trump's crusade to overturn the 2020 election, noted where he got hung up, and taken active steps to avoid that same failure next time. They have rewritten legislation to make sure Republicans get to decide which ballots to count and which to throw out, which results to certify and which to reject. They are passing laws to drive out or strip power from election officials who refuse to go along with the plot in 2020 and replacing them with yes-men who publicly support the big lie. And they're preparing legal cases for when they are inevitably sued when their state legislatures override the choice of the voters. In simple terms, this is no joke. We need to get very sober and serious about the threat we face because the Republicans are making sure they can take power by whatever means necessary. Trump tried and failed, but that failure showed them where democracy is weak, where it's vulnerable, and what points they need to hit when they try it again. Now let's take it back to December 2020, when Trump is holding Stop the Steal rallies and his lawyers are hustling to get votes thrown out, or at least act like they were, and the plot to subvert democracy proper is playing out behind the scenes. We now know there was at least one, if not two, 30-plus page PowerPoint presentations laying out what options the Trump administration had to keep Trump in power despite losing the election. The existence of the PowerPoint presentation alone proves that there was an ongoing and serious attempt to overthrow the will of the voter. If you go to the trouble of making a PowerPoint presentation, you've gone well beyond hypotheticals, beyond spitballing, or just suggesting things, and you have stepped into action. You create a PowerPoint presentation to convince, to sell, to lay out a path people can follow, and to achieve a goal. A PowerPoint presentation is full of motive. And while its exact origin and authors currently remain unknown, the presentation itself was handed over to the 1-6 committee by Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. 
So this is not some anonymous piece of evidence. It's firsthand information directly from one of the people closest to the president at the time of the insurrection. And the PowerPoint presentation is only one element of a number of documents we now know the 1-6 committee is in possession of. Documents that clearly outline the multiple game plans Trump loyalists were considering to overturn election results and were reportedly widely circulated amongst Trump allies and those sympathetic to his baseless claims of fraud. If you haven't seen it, the PowerPoint presentation includes, among other things, suggesting China and Venezuela had taken control of the U.S. electoral system and there was widespread voter fraud in eight states. The presentation recommends the Trump administration claim electronic voting in all fraudulent states are invalid, declare a national emergency, and seize all the ballots, which would then be recounted by Trump loyalists who would report the correct result. Mark Meadows was also part of a meeting where participants considered proposals for reversing the 2020 election results. Meadows encouraged members of Congress to press Republican legislatures to send an alternate slate of electors to Congress. He forwarded baseless claims of election fraud to the Justice Department and suggested they start investigations. He was part of a call with Trump, members of Congress, lawyers for the Trump campaign, and several hundred state and local officials to discuss how to overturn the Electoral College results on January 6th. He traveled to Georgia to observe an audit which apparently led to the call Trump made pushing the Secretary of State to find those extra votes. And he introduced Trump to a senior Justice Department official named Jeffrey Clark, who was trying to get the DOJ to say there was election fraud, despite the lack of evidence, and encouraged DOJ officials to tell GOP-controlled state legislatures to appoint an alternate slate of electors who would back Trump's lie. So Meadows alone is up to his eyeballs in corruption. As far as January 6th, the day the Constitution sets out for the official counting of the Electoral College votes and the rubber stamping to solidify the president-elect's victory, the PowerPoint presentation recommended that Vice President Pence do one of three things. One, seat alternative Republican electors from swing states Trump lost, who would vote for Trump instead of the person who won their state, Biden. Two, reject electors from swing states Trump lost outright and count the Electoral College votes without those states, solidifying Trump as the victor. Or three, have congressional lawmakers object to certain states being certified to delay the formal electoral count until the administration could better look into the perceived fraud. This version of the plan seemed to be rooted in that same idea of getting the ballots back to the states and recounting them. The documents turned over by Meadows suggest Trump would use the National Guard to recount the ballots in buildings surrounded by troops from the Department of Homeland Security, and then the U.S. Marshals would secure the now recounted ballots, and we, the American public, would be told who won. And I can promise you, after all that, the winner would not be Biden. It's version number three that seems to be the one Republican lawmakers went with, because going into January 6th, 12 Republican senators and over 100 House members had publicly said they would object to at least one state's election results, and it started right away with a challenge to Arizona that was unceremoniously interrupted by the pro-Trump insurrectionists attacking the Capitol. Now, we all know what happened next, but when the dust settled after the insurrection, only six Republican senators were still on board to continue with their objections. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Tommy Tuberville, Roger Marshall, John Kennedy, and Cindy Hyde-Smith. Cruz even tried to convince his fellow Republicans to join him by saying, I urge you to pause and think. 
What does it say to nearly half the country that believed this election was rigged if we vote to not even consider the claims of illegality and fraud in this election? It's almost as if this Harvard-educated lawyer hadn't just seen Trump lose all of his election fraud lawsuits in court, including the Supreme Court, for lack of evidence. Because he, of all people, would clearly know, as NPR said at the time, that public opinion doesn't have anything to do with who should win an election or if there should be additional investigations into fraud especially since state election officials and Trump's own Justice Department had already clearly stated multiple times that there had been none. The six senators were joined in their objections by 139 Republican House members and for one state, Senator Rick Scott. But their objections were rejected by the majority vote in both houses and Biden was publicly acknowledged as president-elect. In retrospect, with the information we now have, the behavior of those certain senators and objecting House members now reads more like certain people were following through on a preconceived plan rather than acting in the good faith they claimed. And really, it might have worked if what now appears to be the backup plan of setting the insurrectionists loose on the Capitol to cause chaos and mayhem hadn't spooked some lawmakers caught up in that crossfire. Perhaps they were on board for a quiet little back-channel treason, but this in-your-face violent insurrection that put them in danger? That was a bridge too far. And it's possible those wavering could have been brought back into the fold if they just had a night to calm down. But Nancy Pelosi insisted the House come back that evening to finish the job. She said, We know that we are in difficult times, but we never could have imagined the assault on our democracy today. To those who strove to deter us from our responsibility, you have failed. She went on to say, We'll stay as long as it takes. Our purpose will be accomplished. The Senate also reconvened under heavy security with Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who had been vocally against senators like Cruz and Hawley objecting, saying, we will not bow to lawlessness or intimidation. We are back at our posts and we're going to do this tonight. But ultimately, the PTSD of the Congress members and the bravery of the House leadership were still dependent on the choice the vice president made that day. Because despite looking like a hero for the rule of law, the Constitution and democracy, Pence was wavering. Trump had made a plan, and he was supposed to follow it. Despite the fact that the constitutional scholars were very clear that there was no legal basis for him to follow through on any objections, Pence didn't know what to do. According to career journalists Bob Woodward and Robert Costa in their book Peril, we now know the backbone Pence showed for democracy that day didn't come naturally to him. In fact, according to Costa and Woodward, Pence called Dan Quayle a previous one-term Republican vice president who had to certify Clinton's election and his own loss to see if there was any way he could just give Trump what he wanted and refuse to follow through. According to Woodward and Costa, Pence told Quayle, you don't understand the position I'm in. According to the book, Quayle shut it down by saying, I know exactly the position you're in. I also know what the law is. You listen to the parliamentarian. That's all you do. You have no power. When Pence pressed him, the authors write that Quayle said, Mike, you have no flexibility on this. Forget it. Put it away. And he did. When the House and Senate reconvened that night after the violence and the smoke and the fear had abated, Pence certified the Biden-Harris win as the Constitution said he should. But for any of us paying attention, it was way too close for comfort. And if we don't fix what's going on in America, those who tried this once will no doubt try it again. Well, that's a lot to take in. I get it. So let's just take a little palate cleanser and talk about something nice, like the holidays. Palate cleanser. So I was recently wrapping presents and watching It's a Wonderful Life. 
It's a story of a man named George Bailey, who's disappointed that his life didn't turn out the way he thought it was supposed to, and feeling depressed that everyone seems to be having a more rewarding existence than him. When he has a financial crisis at work, it pushes him over the edge, and he finds himself on a bridge contemplating ending it all. He's interrupted by an angel, who lets him see what his life, the one he considers so small and useless, would have been like if he had never existed. George watches events that he had once been a part of now unfold without him, and he starts to see that the interactions he had, events he might have otherwise overlooked, affected other people in truly significant ways. Over the course of the film, he sees that his existence not only mattered deeply to the bigger picture, but he recognizes the importance of all the things and people in his sadness and disappointment that he had been taking for granted. Ultimately, the film isn't about the importance of one man, but about how important one person can be to the whole, and how essential it is to appreciate that which we have, rather than focus on that which we think is missing. The whole movie reminds me of how I felt 13 years ago, when I was told I was dying. I had just had a baby, and I was having more and more trouble breathing. I thought I was out of shape, I was told it was postpartum, but when I couldn't walk up the stairs to my apartment without gasping for breath, I knew it was more than that. When I was diagnosed with pulmonary hypertension, they gave me two years to live. And, like George Bailey, I had this profound experience where I really saw my life for what it was. Not how I thought it was supposed to be, not for the aspirations I had or the ambition I believed I was failing to achieve, but for the beautiful life I'd actually built for myself. I saw my friends and family. I saw my child and my wonderful husband. And as I lay there in the hospital, I didn't mourn the fact that I'd never been a best-selling author or ended up on the cover of Vanity Fair. I was sad I would never make my son a Halloween costume, that I wouldn't be there holding his hand on the first day of school. I can tell you in all honesty, I just wanted to leave the hospital and go to the grocery store because going to the grocery store was my real life. That's what not dying Lee would be doing. In an instant, all the things I thought I needed didn't matter. I just wanted to be at home sitting on the couch with my husband. Like George Bailey, I thought I wanted this big life full of big things, but when I was faced with losing it all, I realized I already had a big life, full of small things, and that your life doesn't have to be big to be wonderful. I want you to remember that as you go into this holiday season. I know this has been a tough couple of years. You may feel overwhelmed right now. You might not be happy with yourself or with others. You might feel disappointed with your place in the world, but I want you to know that you matter, that your life touches others even when you don't realize it, and that it's not over until it's over. I was given two years to live, and here I am, not dead, watching my child grow, still with my fabulous husband, and doing something I am truly passionate about. I'm still incredibly sick, but I'm not dead yet, and while I'm here, I'm going to make the best of the life I've been given and put as much good into the world as I can. Because if we learn anything from It's a Wonderful Life, it's that what we put out in the world is what makes the difference, that we're all connected, and that good begets good. And in a world with so much bad, we have a responsibility to counter that. We are what's right in the world. We lift each other up. We are the ones who will right the ship and point it in a better direction. The world needs us. The world needs you. You are important. I only wish someone had told Donald Trump that once in his miserable life. Maybe we wouldn't be here now. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
I received an email this week from one of my listeners who was looking for a therapist. She said, I know you were talking about therapy, but what was the company you were mentioning? And I wrote her back right away because I'm always so excited when people find therapy. It's such an incredible addition to any functioning human's life. Living through this particular time in history is a lot. We deal with a lot. And BetterHelp is here to make it easier, matching you with your own licensed therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online. They have a whole range of therapists and services available worldwide. You can log into your account and send a message to your therapist anytime you want, and you can schedule weekly video and phone sessions so you have a designated time to be with them. And trust me, I know how important it is to have the right therapist. So BetterHelp is committed to setting you up with a therapist that you truly connect with, and they make it easy and free to change if it's not working. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today, and I want that for you too. So visit betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl and join the over 2 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's betterhelp.com and use politicsgirl for 10% off your first month. Because honestly, as you try and make the world a better place, your life deserves to be better too. Betterhelp.com. And we're back with all the evidence piling up against the Republicans who have told us for over a year to move on, knowing full well they were the ones that were guilty. Now, it's not yet clear how many people saw the PowerPoint presentation on how to overturn the election, although it's clear certain members of Congress, Trump administration officials, and other allies were definitely briefed. So we do know that this plan to upend the Constitution was an open secret among those meant to be upholding the Constitution. Along with the PowerPoint presentation, Meadows also gave the 1-6 committee access to his text messages, which included a series of texts from prominent people, Fox News personalities, and lawmakers sent during the insurrection begging Trump to intervene and stop the violence. Lawmakers wrote about being trapped in the Capitol, about being under siege, about the insurrectionists trying to break into the House chamber. The president's son, Don Jr., texted Meadows that things had gone too far and his father needed to do an Oval Office address to make it stop. The Fox News personalities seemed more concerned about how the whole thing would be perceived. Like good TV people, they were mostly concerned about the optics and begged the president to shut it down before he ruined his legacy or whatever it is they were trying to sell. And yet, when all those same people spoke on television or to the press that day, Every single one of them downplayed Trump's influence, responsibility, and connection to the events, and pointed fingers at everyone but the people they already knew were responsible. As someone clever on Twitter said, people don't ask you to call them off if they're not your dogs. So Laura Ingram might have gone on Fox News that evening and blamed Antifa, but that afternoon she was texting the person who started it because she knew he was the one that could stop it. So here we are in December 2021, and despite being publicly shellacked for being do-nothing losers sweeping everything under the rug, Nancy Pelosi's select committee has clearly been extremely busy and knows way more than we think. They've interviewed over 300 people. They have evidence, sworn statements, phone records, and emails. The accumulation of information turned over by Meadows alone includes things we've already seen happening, like the plan to continue to undermine voters' faith in vote-by-mail the plan to forge ahead with the baseless claims of election fraud while continuing to privately pressure election officials to overturn results. The Washington Post notes that the correspondence Meadows turned in also casts a new light on the Republican Party's efforts to install Trump loyalists on state election boards, to have state governments pass laws to cut down on election practices they see as unfavorable to Republicans, and to universally whitewash January 6th. All things that are currently happening. If that's not bad enough, 
along with the PowerPoint presentation, the text messages, and all the correspondence on how to better rig the election next time, Rolling Stone magazine published an article revealing that the January 6th organizers had all bought burner phones with cash to communicate with the White House and Trump on the day of the insurrection. As was quickly pointed out, nothing says I'm up to no good like a good old-fashioned burner phone. I mean, unless you're an organized crime selling drugs or having an affair, what are you doing with one of those things? Why would government officials be buying them in bulk to talk to the leader of the free world on the very day the votes to remove him from power were being counted? As many legal minds pointed out, buying burner phones shows premeditation and coordination by a group. It also shows that they had a preconceived cover-up plan should things not go their way. As the brilliant David Korn from Mother Jones wrote back in October, Donald Trump and his GOP henchmen keep trying to normalize their way out of January 6th. With each passing week, they strive to shove that day further down the memory hole. They keep saying, we should forget about it. It's no big deal. It's time to move on. But we know it was deliberate. We know it was premeditated. It was clearly a giant collusion and an even bigger cover-up. Asking us to move on seems incredibly self-serving for the people most caught up in it. Korn points out, this need for the country to forget, to move past that horrible day, is crucial for Republican survival. Because how can a political party maintain a shred of legitimacy if its leader is widely seen as the inciter of a treasonous insurrection? So when Trump was impeached by the Democratic House for inciting the insurrection, the Republicans, who for months had been sowing division and chaos with their election fraud narrative, were suddenly, and very performatively, worried about dividing the country. They were adamant that we should let it go and come together for the good of America. And despite the fact that the Democratic impeachment managers laid out the most beautiful case against Trump with timelines and video footage and tweets and first-person accounts, no matter how well they did or what clear evidence they had, they were never going to win their case. The jury was rigged, stacked with Republican co-conspirators, people compromised by Trump and their own personal interests. The Republican Party were never going to vote to remove Trump, so it didn't matter how well laid out the case was or how guilty people like Mitch McConnell, who clearly does not like Trump, knew him to be. He wasn't going to be held responsible because his party couldn't have him be responsible. Ted Cruz tweeted that the entire impeachment trial was simply the Democrats' vindictive personal agenda and that in the midst of a pandemic, the Democrats were wasting their time with this silliness instead of legislating for the American people. Keep in mind, this is the same guy who ignored COVID and its relief bills for months, let his president actively and maliciously downplay the virus, and allowed over 500,000 Americans to die while pushing his own political agenda. Ted had literally just voted to throw out American votes. He'd lived through an armed insurrection caused by leaders like him who had personally been telling people for months the election had been stolen. The American public had watched their capital be breached. People had died. Capitol Police had brain injuries and their eyes had been gouged out and a number of them had committed suicide. Accountability and the pursuit of justice was the only logical course of action if we ever hope to defend and protect the United States, our Constitution, and our rule of law again. But 10 months later, we're starting to see the evidence of why people like Ted just wanted it all to go away. After the Republicans voted to not hold Trump accountable for the insurrection, he was impeached by the House but not removed by the Senate, they also voted against looking into holding anyone accountable. The Democrats had proposed an independent bipartisan commission like we had for 9-11 to investigate the 1-6 insurrection. 
Despite the fact that Republicans were all over the media suggesting the insurrection was caused by Antifa, BLM, the FBI, they showed very little interest in the idea of actually proving that. But they did make a lot of unreasonable demands for the commission, including equal representation with the majority party, final say over all committee members, subpoena power, veto over Democratic subpoenas, plus an end date of the 31st of December to keep it out of the 2022 election year. Now, I'm sure, based on how crazy those demands are, they thought the Democrats would just say no, and they could turn around and say to the American people, well, we tried, but the Democrats won't work with us. They're inflexible and they won't let the commission be fair. But the Democrats didn't do that. They agreed to every single demand the Republicans asked for. But lo and behold, when the time came to vote to move the commission forward, the Republicans voted against it. Huh. So there would be no independent bipartisan commission. No impartial balanced inquiry into the most violent event on Capitol soil since the War of 1812. But since most of the country still wanted to know what happened, Nancy Pelosi used her right as Speaker of the House to set up a Benghazi-style committee to hold hearings and get to the bottom of the issue. She decided on a 13-person committee, seven Democrats and six Republicans. Remember, it could have been an even number, but the Republicans had voted against that. Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's first response to the creation of the committee was to tell his members that if any of them agreed to be on it, he would strip them of their congressional positions. But Liz Cheney, who had already been stripped of her leadership position and personally targeted by McCarthy, called his bluff and agreed to be on the committee. So Pelosi turned to McCarthy and said, OK, I've got one of yours. You name five more. Let me know. I'll approve them. We'll get started. So after voting not to impeach, voting against the bipartisan commission, and essentially blackmailing his members to not be involved in the committee, Kevin McCarthy gave Pelosi five Republicans, and he made sure one of them was Jim Jordan, the aggressively abrasive congressman from Ohio, known for his theatrical obstruction, broad and vocal support of the insurrection, and his loose attachment to morality after he knowingly overlooked the molestation of hundreds of college students under his care. Naming Jordan to the committee along with Jim Banks, another pro-insurrection, anti-investigation member, was a little like recommending Exxon executives be on the Committee for Environmental Justice. And Pelosi wasn't having it. She said, I'll take these other three, but having these two on the committee would undermine the integrity of the investigation, since both men had made multiple statements in favor of the thing they were supposed to be investigating. She basically said, you can't be a successful member of a committee for something that was bad if you think it was good. McCarthy called Pelosi's choice an egregious abuse of power and in a snit pulled all of his choices from the committee, claiming he was going to start his own committee and do his own investigation, which of course he did not do. But thanks to Mark Meadows' texts, we now know that Jim Jordan himself was a leading voice, actively presenting ways to prevent the Electoral College from proceeding with Biden certification the day before January 6th. Look, going on TV to sow doubt in the election is one thing. Being vocally supportive of the insurrectionists is another. But taking provable, concrete steps to obstruct the democratic process by which we transfer power in this country? That's a crime. This revelation that Jordan was involved in the coup, or as CNN said, at least coup-adjacent, is pretty striking, since this is who Republican leadership chose to represent them on the committee looking into the coup. It also shouldn't be forgotten that Jim Jordan was also awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom one week after the insurrection in a private ceremony with Trump. The editorial board of his hometown paper in Ohio put it best when they said, I can hardly think of anyone less deserving of the Medal of Freedom than Jim Jordan, one of the seditious lawmakers who willfully created an alternate reality by spreading lies and conspiracy and blocked the peaceful transition of power. 
This man has done a disservice to our country and does not deserve to be mentioned with the likes of Thurgood Marshall, Cesar Chavez, and Maya Angelou. So the Republicans have done everything they can to avoid us knowing what we know today. They didn't want to know why the National Guard didn't come, why Donald Trump wasn't whisked away to a bunker, why the Capitol Police were underprepared, underdressed, and underarmed. They weren't interested in who planted the pipe bombs or gave the insurrectionist tours the day before. They said it was irrelevant that organized militia groups appeared to be moving in tactical formation through the crowd and knew exactly which Capitol windows and doors hadn't been reinforced and where specific members of Congress's offices were. They didn't want to know. They voted against knowing. And every step of the way, they have blocked anyone trying to find out. Now, it doesn't take much thought as to why Donald Trump wanted us to move on from 1-6. He was 100% responsible for what happened. He was the leader of this horror, the man who served to benefit the most from a successful coup or insurrection, the man who tried everything to overturn a free and fair election, and if not stopped, will probably do it again. But as more and more information becomes public, we're finding out it is not just Trump and a small handful of loyalists who were responsible. It is an increasingly large group of active, sitting Republican legislators who are not just implicated, but clearly involved. The more that comes out, the more we realize how many of them knew what was happening, how many have been an accessory to the cover-up, and how many seem ready and willing to do it again. Before the Meadows information leaked, Close allies to the ex-president were still trying to brush off the entire insurrection as a Democratic conspiracy. Pence went on Fox News in October to say, I know the media wants to distract from the Biden administration's failed agenda by focusing on one day in January, but we should be focused on the future. He went on to say that 1-6 was just a media plot to protect Joe Biden. Marjorie Taylor Greene said the 1-6 was a setup by the FBI and Nancy Pelosi to pit Trump supporters against the police and create a false narrative. But on January 7th, right after the insurrection, that same Marjorie Taylor Greene did an interview with a UK internet racist named Katie Hopkins, who praised her for her bravery and inspirational leadership. And Greene said, it was a tough thing we did yesterday, but I wouldn't do anything else. So... So many Republicans and right-wing leaders are caught up in this plot, it's extraordinary. It's actually hard to get your head around. As someone on Twitter pointed out, we haven't seen a cover-up this expansive or insidious since Watergate, and this makes Watergate look cute. And as for the people saying, I feel like we knew all this. What's the big deal? It's not like anything's going to happen to these traitors. As I said in my previous pod, knowing something to be true and proving it to be true are two completely different things. The 1-6 committee is gathering evidence that proves what many of us felt was obvious, but now can be proved beyond a doubt. And the language they're using while revealing it is revealing in itself. Back in February, after the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell voted to acquit Donald Trump after the impeachment trial, he added a caveat. He said, Donald Trump is liable for everything he did while he was in office as an ordinary citizen. He didn't get away with anything yet. This past week, as the 1-6 committee continues to uncover the increasingly desperate and anti-democratic efforts to overturn the 2020 election, while most Republicans are clearly playing defense, McConnell comes out and says, I think we're all watching just as you are what's unfolding on the House side, and it'll be interesting to reveal all of the participants involved. And while that might sound like a bit of a generic statement, nothing McConnell says is without deliberation. And while most Republicans are up in arms about the committee being a bunch of partisan hacks overstepping their place— McConnell's comments, in many ways, legitimize the committee's mandate and their work. Which means something. 
since most of the people caught up in the investigation are, in theory, his political allies. When given the chance to walk his statement back like he'd somehow made a mistake, he doubled down. He said, I think the fact-finding is interesting. We're all going to be watching it. And then he went further by adding, it was a horrendous event, and I think what they're seeking to find is something the public needs to know. Hmm. It's almost like Mitch would be happy to get rid of all these traitors. I mean, he's his own kind of villain to democracy, but he plays within the bounds of the Constitution. And he had a pretty good thing going before Donald Trump and all his yahoos took over. It doesn't serve him to flip the board. He's winning at the game of America, and maybe these assholes have just outlived their usefulness to him. Time will tell. Liz Cheney, one of the two Republicans with Adam Kinzinger on the 1-6 committee, drew some attention to herself this week with her public remarks drifting distinctly into legalese. She started talking about criminal culpability and directly addressing Trump's potential connection with the Capitol siege. She's now using clear legal language and being very specific with the legal consequences awaiting someone who may be held responsible for inciting the January 6th attack. It's almost as if she's signaling the Justice Department by making clear references to charges the DOJ has already brought against hundreds of January 6th defendants, the obstruction of an official proceeding, which is a statute relevant if evidence emerges that Trump planned or was aware of the violence that unfolded that day, which, of course, based on the slew of text messages sent to Meadows, whatever those burner phones have to say, or whatever Mark Meadows' private phone records, the ones he's currently in contempt of Congress for not providing, show us. But all indication points to Trump being both involved in the planning and aware of the violence. Many legal minds have pointed out that although things might feel obvious or just shocking slam-dunk criminal behaviors, politics itself is all about momentum and precedent. Never before has a former American president been criminally charged, let alone an entire group of sitting congresspeople. And while there is the argument for just storming in and arresting everyone, there is the counter-argument for what's called warming the water, to best prepare the public for such a drastic move. What we can't do is continue to allow the Republicans to sweep this under the rug. As David Korn says, Pay no attention to the unprecedented domestic terrorism that jeopardizes our constitutional order. Just move on. Nothing to see here. The Republicans needed a conspiracy, so they made one up, and they need to be held accountable. We can't tolerate or normalize this behavior. It's a conspiracy to defraud the United States, and it should be prosecuted as such. Lawyers like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz should be held accountable to both the law, or at the very least the bar, for deceiving the people and abandoning the Constitution in such bad faith. Keep in mind this is all just the tip of the iceberg, a shred of what is going to come out. Everything I've laid out is just the beginning, and the people need to hang on for the ride our country is about to go on. Honestly, this should be the end of the GOP as a viable party. Let Liz Cheney set up something new. We need people willing to work within democracy. Democrats and any sensible Republicans left need to understand that we cannot mend this nation, that there will be no healing until there is mass, visible, public, legal accountability for those who undermined and continue to undermine our democracy. These people attempted to overthrow the government, to take the reins of American power by outrageous means, and the country requires consequences. The midterms are less than a year away, and they will ultimately determine how much these people get away with. Because if they win, this all goes away. They've already showed us they're willing to break the rules and change the laws and abandon the Constitution if it suits them. These are criminals, and America should punish criminals, not put them in charge. 
As Luke Zaleski, the legal affairs editor at Condé Nast says, we are living through an endless cycle of Republican abuse of power and obstruction of justice that has seen two impeachments and an ongoing insurrection so far. There is no end, no bottom. So it is up to us, the people of the United States, to hold the line and insist our government hold these people accountable. Yes, Trump is a threat to democracy. Yes, the right-wing propaganda machine is a threat to democracy. But this doesn't end unless we give up. The only solution is continued, productive, civic engagement. We don't let them win. We support the 1-6 committee as it does its job. We put pressure on the Justice Department to do theirs. We reject the fake, lying propaganda media and their conspiracy to commit fraud. And we prioritize voting rights and the sanctity of our votes through legislation in Congress. As Barton Gelman said, if we don't take this threat seriously, the next attempt to overthrow a national election might not even need to be a coup. The Republicans are relying on subversion and suppression, not violence. If the plot succeeds, the ballots cast by the American voter will not decide the presidency in 2024. Thousands or millions of votes will be thrown away. The winner will be declared the loser. The loser will become president. And that is something that must be unacceptable to all of us. So that's it. Keep your eyes and ears open as this thing continues to unfold. The committee has promised public hearings starting in the new year. And speaking of the new year, we'll be off next week, but back with a new pod on January 4th. Enjoy the holiday season and time with your family and friends. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Remember, you matter. And together we can make this a wonderful life. Until next year, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Touch Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.